This morning's sermon text is taken from the second epistle of uh, St. Peter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, and this can be found on page 1298 of the Pew Bible. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Well, I think that if you were honest with me, you would agree that we are in some strange days. It's really hard to know who to trust. Who, who can you really trust to tell you the truth? Who can you trust that can actually bring about the things that they promise to bring about? We've seen an ever-eroding trust and authority in our nation, uh, really ever since the 60s. And uh, you'd have to admit, in recent days, it seems like that's only been exacerbated by COVID-19. Uh, we've had folks who've been alone with the internet and time to, to think about all kinds of things. And uh, we know where those clickbait trails sort of lead us and all kinds of falsity. And you have to ask yourself, in recent days, not only who do you trust, but who can you trust? Uh, there was recently uh, released the Edelman Trust Barometer. It, it was a test that, that just measures how people are doing with, with trust. I didn't even know they had this test. It's interesting, but it measured, obviously, steep declines in trust in what they called an epidemic, not just a physical one, but a psychological one, of misinformation and widespread mistrust of social institutions and leaders around the world. In fact, uh, I've had a number of folks who have been gracious to our family and, and bringing meals recently. And on a couple of occasions, I had Christian brothers or sisters mention that there's been a one or another leader that's fallen spiritually recently that's caused them to really have difficulty in their confidence in leaders and others in their spirituality. So it's not just something that a barometer way far away has picked up. You've probably experienced this in the local experiences of your life. You know, things like fake, fake news are, are really deceiving us about the nature of a true reality. I mean, how many of you have, like, stated a fact or said, hey, did you hear this? And somebody's like, oh, that's fake news. That's where we live. Well, I want you to know this morning that fake news isn't as new as we think it is. In fact, the Apostle Peter experienced fake news, false prophecies, false teachings in his day in a way that were leading people astray from truth. It was an alternative truth model that was being offered that was different from and contrasting the truth as received from the apostles. And the apostle Peter confronted this in this day. See, this morning we're actually launching a new series called Remember This, True Knowledge. And we're going to be going verse by verse through 2 Peter. We're beginning with just the first two verses this morning. And as we'll see in this introduction... It doesn't tell us who exactly Peter is writing to. Uh, but if you were to, to scroll down really quickly to 2 Peter 3.1, you'll notice that he says this is a second letter. So I'm assuming that the first letter is 1 Peter, a, a letter that was written to some churches in Asia Minor's Roman provinces, uh, an area that today would be modern Turkey. And we find here that it seems that Peter is writing to a, a mostly Gentile audience. And 2 Peter itself tells us what I believe Peter's purpose is. So, so if you look back up at 2 Peter 1.14, you'll notice that Peter sees that his, his death appears to be imminent. He's about to die. If you think about it, you'll, you'll be reminded that Peter heard this news from Jesus himself at the, the end of John's Gospel. He believes that that time is coming. Where, as John tells us that Jesus told Peter in John 21, 19, that he would die and follow him into a death like his. And he says in verse 19, this is the kind of death by which you are going to glorify God. Now, we don't know exactly, we don't have evidence exactly of how Peter went on to die or Paul. But Adam Clark in his commentary says that it is commonly believed that Peter and Paul died during the persecution of Nero, where they sealed the truth with their blood. And though we can't be certain that this is the time or the way that it happened, it is likely. 
which would date this letter somewhere around 68 AD. It's, it's an early letter. And as Peter contemplates his death, he is telling his readers repeatedly that he wants to stir them up to remembrance. I want, I want you to remember some things. I don't want you to forget the true knowledge of Christ that will get you into the eternal kingdom where righteousness dwells. I want you to make it all the way. And as he's speaking through this letter, what you're going to note is, is that his tone is actually, even though he's speaking to Christians, it's urgent. He has an urgency about the message that he's, he's bringing, and it's also sobering. It's just a good reminder that it's okay for Christians to sometimes take things seriously. I mean, we all like a pep rally. But there are also things in the Word of God that are the most weighty things that we really should be sobered by. And I think that's what Peter wants for us in this letter. What he seems to be concerned about, as you read, is false prophets and teachers who have come in, and they're teaching really at least two false things, one about ethics and one about eschatology. Now, ethics is just about how you live your moral life. And it seems that these teachers are kind of living however they want, and they're saying it's okay. They're involved in all kinds of sins. They look like the world, and they don't see a problem with it. And the second issue is eschatology, or end times. See, they, they seem to be teaching that it has been a long time since we've heard Jesus say that he's coming back soon. I don't know that Jesus is coming back. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I don't understand, like, how does eschatology and ethics go together? Well, I mean, you can imagine how this works out if you have kids. If you've ever left your house and you said, hey, kids, I'm, I'm coming back, but it won't be a while, and you show up early, and they're, like, fighting, and, like, the whole house is trash, and you're like, what just happened? It's like, you weren't supposed to be back yet, right? Well, it's kind of the thing that we find going on here, except you have false teachers who are teaching false things that are leading to a, a lifestyle that doesn't look like it's being shaped by the truth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't look like they really believe the promises that Jesus has given them that he will return to judge the living and the dead and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, you might think that people who are too heavenly-minded will be no earthly good, but Peter's letter actually argues the opposite. He emphasizes that a right understanding of the return of Jesus Christ, being reminded of that, as we are being reminded of that today, is a powerful encouragement to Christian virtue. In fact, the false teachers seem to indulge in all kinds of sin because they don't believe that he is coming back. Now, remembering the great day of the Lord, it will change your life. If you're remembering it, reminding yourself of it, your life will look differently. So Peter confronts his teaching with three truths. He says, look, here's what you need to know in light of these fake news stories. You need to know that Jesus is God, Jesus is coming back, and how you live until then reveals whether or not you have true knowledge of Jesus. Now, Peter would say the two days that matter most are today and the last day. Now, we're beginning with Peter's intro this morning in those first two verses, and here's what we're going to see. If you're writing notes, you can write this down, our big idea. It's that saving grace comes from the saving righteousness of Christ and multiplies in the true knowledge of God and Jesus. Saving grace comes from the saving righteousness of Christ and multiplies in the true knowledge of God and Jesus. As we begin, let me go ahead and, and pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at God's Word. Will you pray with me? Father, we come this morning... And Father, we, we ask that you would awaken our hearts afresh. Lord, that you would help us to take grasp of and hold on to those new morning mercies this morning. That we would see more of you. That you would shape us, transform us, help us to know you truly. Lord, do this through the power of your word. And in your spirit we pray. Amen. Now first, you'll notice our first point. I want you to meet the author, Simon Peter, who is the servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's meet the author. Now first, Peter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his first letter. But you'll notice that he throws a little nuance in here. He changes it up. And here in verse 1, he says, Simeon Peter... 
a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's Hebrew name, Simeon, is only used here and, and by James in, in back in Acts 15. It's there at the Jerusalem Council that James refers to him as Simeon. Now, Simeon is a form, uh, the Greek form is, is Simon, and it was a, a very popular name. In fact, commentator Richard Bauckham, speaking of this name Simon, says it seems to have been the commonest Jewish name between 100 B.C. and 200 A.D. The New Testament actually displays this. Uh, if you look at the New Testament and you read straight through, you'll find actually ten different Simons and two different Simeons in addition to Simeon Peter. You'll remember also that Jesus' nickname, Peter, or Simon, is Peter, which means the rock. Uh, the Aramaic is Cephas. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians. And he did this based on his good confession in Matthew 16. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in other words, Jesus is the long-awaited, spirit-anointed king or messiah from the line of David that the Jews longed to bring them peace from their enemies. And, and you'll remember that Jesus replied to Peter after he said the good confession in Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades or death, it shall not prevail against it. Now, if you're from a Roman Catholic background and you're thinking about Peter and you're looking at Matthew 16, you've likely seen this verse used to support Peter as a, a pope, an earthly manifestation of Christ on earth with each subsequent pope sitting on his seat. What's fascinating, though, is if you just read a few more verses down, we find that the Scriptures do not set aside Peter as some kind of moral or theological elite. Uh, in fact, in Matthew 16, four verses later, right after saying, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? And why is that? It's because he says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, and you're not going to have to die. You don't need to die. We're going to win. We're going to be victorious. And Jesus says, you don't understand the mission. My mission is to come and to die for you. So, I think this really gives us a good snapshot in Matthew 16 of Peter. Another one would be in the transfiguration that's mentioned in the same letter, where he actually comes with two other disciples, and they're able to, to view the, the transfiguration of Jesus, where he displays his glory. And, and Peter, of course, is always quick to, to talk, and, and maybe talk before he thinks, and he says, this is great. I'm going to build a, a tent, a booth for you and Elijah and Moses. And we're going to hang out and have a party. And guess who interrupts Peter? This time it's God the Father himself. And he just speaks right over Peter and says, this is my beloved son. There is no equal to Jesus Christ. There is none like him. Many years after the resurrection and ascension, of Christ, we find Paul rebuking Peter in Galatians for not correcting the Judaizers' teaching. See, Peter was not a, a superhuman pope. Now, Peter, I, I love Peter because he, he just reminds me a lot of myself. He, he speaks before he thinks. I do that all the time. A lot of times I put my foot in my mouth and try to fix it. Uh, he's the kind of guy that, that struggles, it seems, with pride. Like, how can I be great in your kingdom, Jesus? Who gets to sit to the left and the right? Like, he's got these ideas in his mind, and yet he's also desperately grateful to God for his blessings. Loves Jesus. He sees Jesus far away. He jumps in. He starts swimming to get to him. He, he, he's a disciple who, who is complex like so many of us. And yet, this Peter is more than just like us. Because notice that Peter also introduces himself as a, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word for servant is actually doulos or, or slave, and it pictures this idea of Jesus Christ, who is mentioned three times in the first two verses. Did you notice that? Jesus Christ, he's talking a lot about Jesus in those first two verses. And it, it pictures Jesus as his master, 
as though he is not on par with Jesus, but beneath Jesus. And this title of slave speaks both to, I believe, humility and honor. Let me just think about this. Do you see it? The word literally speaks of one who bends his or her will in submission to another. And and so there's a humility in that. I'm a a slave to Jesus. I am putting his will above my will. Doesn't mean I always want what Jesus wants, but I want to want what Jesus wants. And here we find that he sees Jesus Christ, God's King, as his King and Master. Slave does not serve to bring recognition to himself. He doesn't speak to bring recognition to himself. He speaks to bring recognition to his master. Lots of humility in this. See, Peter's identity is shaped by Jesus. But it not only speaks of humility, it speaks of honor as well. Now, you'll remember as you read through the Scriptures in the Old Testament, he is joining a long list of famed servants of Yahweh. Servants like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Moses and David and others, as well as in the New Testament, we find other slaves of Jesus Christ like Paul and James and Jude. In fact, Peter might be contrasting himself with the false prophets that he's warning of later who were not slaves of Jesus Christ, but slaves of corruption in 2.19, destined for destruction. He's got a better master and a better future and a better hope. But notice that he's also an apostle, which means messenger. And and it can mean somewhere in some places missionaries, but it's used here, as it is in Romans 1.1, speaking of Paul, as a special messenger of Jesus Christ. So he's not speaking just as another sinner. He's actually speaking as a messenger who has come from Jesus to deliver God's word to God's people. And this is what Peter understands his unique mission in the church to be. He sees himself dying soon. His death is imminent. And he's concerned that his people might grow weary once he leaves of waiting on Jesus to come back. And forget the trustworthy apostolic teaching. In fact, Richard Bauckham says one of Peter's purposes in this letter is to communicate the apostles' teaching to a post apostolic generation I want you to have a testimony that is tried and true and lasts and Peter is a servant and apostle who knows that he's about to obey Jesus and put his will above his own even to the point of following him into death for his faith and his job until then is to be a good mailman for Jesus that's his job he's a messenger now think about this good mailmen and women are, I think, defined by certain aspects of the job that you really hope they don't mess up with, right? Like, when my mailman or mailwoman delivers the mail, I would be a little bit upset if the the letter was opened, and I opened it up, and I saw a ton of, like, white out, and, like, different handwriting where parts were changed, like, said I love you but I, I changed it I didn't like that so I said I hate you and like just kind of changed the message right it'd be a problem well it's, it's really the same kind of thing with the messengers the apostles who are coming they are coming with the authoritative mail of the king and, and their job is to make sure that they are accurately communicating what has been entrusted to them by Christ to Christ's people not to change it Not to add to it, not to take away from it, but to give them the pure teaching of the Word. See, we believe eternal life, both today and the last day, depends on truly knowing God. Truth matters. Fake news can destroy your life now and forever. True news, it can change everything. Starting today... And lasting into the new heavens and the new earth and forever where righteousness dwells. And so my goal each Sunday as I I preach, as we preach at Trinity Bible Church, is a steady diet of expositional preaching. Preaching God's Word in its original context. 
showing how it prepares the way or points to or highlights or makes much of Jesus Christ and then talking about how we as Christians ought to apply it in light of who we are in Christ. So we're preaching verse by verse through 2 Peter this spring because we believe this truth in a world of fake news matters. That's why Paul reminds Timothy to rightly handle the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 2.15 and in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, I want you to keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Very close. Persist in this because by it you will save yourself and your hearers. The word matters. We need to make sure we're preaching the word. The scripture is the very speech of our transcendent creator to his lowly creatures in which he has expressed all things concerning how we can please God and live a meaningful existence in this life and the life to come. You know, I don't know if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, I like literally pulled myself in here not with a lot of hope and I don't really know what my life is about. Let me tell you this, the Word of God, it tells you what you've been created for, and it is something far more than what anyone in this world can convey or sort of create for you as a type of meaning. You have been made to image the invisible God. Take up and read. But second, I want you to meet the audience. It says, it is those who obtained a faith equal to the apostles in that second part of verse 1. Now here Peter skips the geographical identity of his audience that he uses in 1 Peter and he describes them with this brief yet theologically robust statement that I'm hoping startles and gives you hope at the same time look what he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ now there are a few aspects that kind of explode in my mind in this text. The first is, you'll notice that he writes to those who have obtained a faith. Those who have obtained a faith. Now, I don't know about you, but it's normal for me when I think about faith to think about it as something that I do. It's something that, that comes from me. And, and I, I think the scriptures do speak of it in that way in places. But here, this text seems to say something different is that faith is something received or obtained from the outside. Language just kind of naturally hits me like that. And so in my mind, I'm starting to hear like an ego Montoya from The Princess Bride. You know what I'm talking about? Where he says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. I mean, is that really the way that faith works? Did you mean to say it that way? So, I said, well, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look up this word for obtained and a couple of you know, Greek dictionaries and see what they have to say about it. I looked up at uh, in one, Laonida, and they said this. The word for obtain means to receive with the implication that the process is related somehow to divine will or favor. So here it, it, it's saying not only is this a word that does mean what we think it means, but usually with the idea that it is actually coming from God. This word also carries the idea that one obtains faith from God as a grace or a gift. I, I like the image that the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uses for obtain. Uh, there it says this, to attain by lot. You know, kind of like dice, like you throw it, and whoever gets it is the one who's chosen, kind of like they did with Jonah and elsewhere. But he goes on to say, but even when there is no casting of lots, the attainment is not by one's own effort, a result of one's own exertions, but it's like ripe fruit falling into one's lap. That's what obtain is. Like just, man, I'm sitting here and all of a sudden, boom, look, fruit. What's the fruit? It's faith. And here Peter pictures faith as falling in the laps of the Christians without respect to their own effort or exertion. Doesn't mean it's, it's absent. It's just that's not the picture that we have here. We see this throughout the scriptures when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, the Gentiles come running and we're told as many as were appointed to eternal life believed or faith in Jesus Christ. Similarly, Paul 
writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace and through faith that you've been saved, and this not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, Peter does not speak of faith. Uh, Peter doesn't speak of the faith handed down, as it says in some places, or that you would expect here. A message or content that's, that's passed on, but of faith itself. See, the Bible presents not only the object of our faith, being Christ's work, that we're going to talk about in a second, the gift of God, but the subjective experience of faith is a gift as well. See, the faith necessary for salvation, according to Peter, is a divine gift. And look in your laps at your faith. Look at it, and don't undervalue the faith that you have. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it is a gift from God to you. It is beautiful, delicious fruit. It brings life and promise and meaning. But notice, you don't want to undervalue it because also, he says, this gift of faith is of equal standing with ours. Some of you might be reading from an NIV that says something like, to those who have a, as precious, a faith as precious as ours. And, and you might like the way that sounds better. I mean, it does have a, little, a nice little ring to it. A faith as precious as ours. Like, don't we just like the word precious? It's not bad. But I think equal standing, like we have in the, the ESV, probably translates more exactly what Peter intends. So equal righteousness or equal preciousness, it could mean the same value but a different kind or all kinds of things, but Bible teacher Tom Schreiner says that it, it's, it's more likely and correct to say that it speaks of equality. In fact, he uses first century Jewish historian Josephus. And Josephus uses this word, and he used the term to refer to civic equality, right? Like, so in a city, we, we all have sort of equal rights and privilege and, and standing. So equal standing is good, but it gets better. Are you with me? Who is the equal standing with? You'll notice it's equal to ours. Now, who is ours? What does Peter mean by ours? Uh, Different people have taken this different ways. Some have said ours probably speaks of like Jews and Gentiles because we know in the scriptures there's, there's lots of debates about uh, Jews and Gentiles being in equal standing, even in, you know, like Jerusalem uh, Council and those sorts of things. Others say that it speaks of the apostles is ours. Or, or it could simply speak of all the Christians who were just with Peter at that time or in general. Of course, I think if... I'm thinking about this clearly. I hope I am. In any one of these groups, Peter is an apostle. And he's just said, I'm an apostle. And he's in that group. So our standing would be equal to at least one apostle. And I'm assuming he means all the apostles as well. Now, while not everyone speaks with apostolic authority, he says everyone who has obtained faith enjoys equal standing with every other Christian even the apostles themselves, regardless of their zip code, their class, their gender, their ethnicity, and an equal share in the promises and blessings of the children of God. Doesn't mean there aren't different roles like gifted teachers and gifted servants, but it means that when it comes to salvation, the, the ground is flat at the foot of the cross. To Christian brothers and sisters, this is good news for beleaguered souls. Great news for people who have been cooped up in their houses for a year during a pandemic. Now, this both humbles and honors us. So to those of you who have come in this morning limping and bruised to meet with God's people, and you feel like you don't belong, you're not alone. To those who fear not being accepted by other church members because the world has convinced you that, that you're unimportant. To those of you who have begun to, to feel self-important for education or station. To those who just came to the faith and don't believe they know enough to count amongst the people of God. To those whose lives are full of regrets about failed relationships, marriages, potential suitors, children. To those of you who don't have spiffy jobs or jobs at all. Maybe you feel as though you were ashamed this morning for sins, past, present. And you feel like you just want to hide under your seat. Maybe you don't even want to sit in the front rows because of that. You can sit in the front rows. Hear the apostles' word. You have obtained a faith 
of equal standing with ours and the apostles. Do you see it? You can come out from under the chair. It's safe to move about the cabin. But why? We're not done. Because he says, also, the gift of faith is obtained by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, some take this second phrase, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, to speak of the fairness of God. A lot of commentators, some commentators I even respect, uh, guys like Richard Bauckham and, and Dick Lucas, they, they take it this way. And the reason is, is they think that this righteousness of God is actually modifying the faith. But instead, righteousness, by the righteousness here, isn't modifying uh, anything but obtained. See, this speaks of God's saving righteousness. The grace of God that saves sinners. It's not modifying the, the equal standing, which would mean that it was fair. It's actually modifying the obtained, which is what is received. It is obtained by God's saving righteousness. That's what's brought it to us. So maybe this sounds strange to you. You know, you, you came this morning feeling discouraged by not meeting God's righteous standard. And yet here, God's righteousness, it seems to be spoken of in a positive, hopeful way. Yet you think of God's righteousness as more like suffocation than salvation. It, it feels like something that is oppressive rather than freeing. And so what is Paul, I mean, what is Peter talking about? Well, here, I believe the famous reformer Martin Luther is helpful. He was an Augustinian monk. He was raised up in the Roman Catholic Church. And when he read of the righteousness of God, he, he read it in this way. He, he felt that he was actually under sort of God's thumb throughout his life. See, he, he believed that salvation was really something that you had to work for and earn by your righteousness from God. And it was sort of a, a fluid relationship whereby uh, you would have to do all kinds of sacraments to, to earn back God's favor when it was lost through sin. And so uh, sometimes you had to go through the sacrament of uh, taking communion, which was a fresh sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They literally thought Jesus was being offered freshly in communion, not what we're going to be doing today when we practice communion. And when they would do that, uh, they would feel like, oh, there's a sacrifice like the Old Testament that takes away these sins until I sin again and need another fresh sacrifice. And hopefully I don't die in my sin because that's not good. Or maybe they would do another um, uh, sacrament, the sacrament of penance, where they would actually go through some rituals to try to earn back God's favor for themselves or others. So Martin Luther is famous for climbing up this large staircase of stone stairs, saying, Our Father over each one, trying to earn back God's favor. And when he got to the top, he was like, I don't even know if this stuff works. I don't know about you, I've got bad knees. That sounds miserable. And yet he believed this was a way that he could win back favor with God. But when Luther started to study a text that sounds similar to this one in Romans 1.17, he read, The righteous shall live by faith, which is quoted from Habakkuk 2. And, and as he was reading that, he at first thought that that was speaking of his righteousness. But he came to understand the language not to mean an unachievable standard to be attained, but instead the saving righteousness of God to be believed and received, making him positionally a full heir with Christ based on Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. Do you see it? Equal standing. He's not sitting on, on shifting sand. He is on the rock of Christ with others who have believed in the faith that Peter believed in, which is that Jesus is the Messiah who is the saving righteousness of God. This righteousness in 2 Peter 1.1 speaks of that same saving righteousness that Habakkuk 2 in Romans 1.17 and elsewhere in Scripture speaks of. It is a gift of grace whereby God credits His very righteousness to His people's account, takes their sin from them, takes it up, puts it on the cross with Christ, and then takes his perfect life and atoning death and credits it to our account. That's what grace means. Do you see it? That's grace. 
See, God declares unrighteous people righteous. We don't come and have equal standing because I'm smarter or I've studied more Bible or because you make more money or because you're a girl and not a boy or because you come from a certain nationality, but because of who Jesus is. Getting a little bit excited up in here. So we enjoy what Luther called an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is not indigenous or local to us. It is a righteousness that has come from outside of us to us that has changed us forever. That means that the righteousness spoken of here was alien to or outside of Luther. He did not manufacture it. See, God gifted to him this grace. God's righteous standard in the law condemned Luther, but God's gift of righteousness also saved him. When Luther discovered this, this truth, this reality, and it really seeped in, and maybe this needs to seep in for you afresh this morning. Maybe it has before, you forgot it, and you need to be reminded. That's okay. Peter says, it's legal for me to remind you of stuff. And he says this. Luther says, when I discovered that, that reality of God's saving righteousness, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through and if you haven't walked through those doors today, friend, don't leave here without walking through the doors of faith in Jesus Christ is your saving righteousness, saving you from the wrath of God, making you a child of God so that you can sit and stand on equal standing with us. Tom Schreiner observes, the faith received then is rooted in God's saving righteousness, his free gift of salvation, which is in accord with his steadfast love and mercy, his covenant love with us. And all that pertains to salvation, including faith, was dropped into our laps, this saving grace, undeserved, given to us absolutely as a gift. Now, I told you <clears throat> that this short intro was packed with theology. So hang on tight, because here he calls it the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, some take this as speaking of God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. But if you read closely, the structure of this clause actually supports understanding this as calling our Savior Jesus Christ God. It's saying that Jesus is God. He is our God and Savior. Uh, if you're a, a Greek geek, that's the Granville Sharp rule that's at play here. No article before the noun Savior. Everybody else can wake up and check back in. See, Christians believe Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. And everything that God is, Jesus is. D did you hear that? That's good theology. Everything that God is, Jesus is. The Son of God was always God, but He was not always man. Are y'all hanging with me? This is Jesus. He took on flesh in time and space in the person of Jesus. And what's also fascinating is that Jesus' very name comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Now, how do I know that? Because I was baptized in June 10th of 1990, and uh, I got a picture from Miss Mary Ruth Carruth that has the story of, of my baptism and salvation on the back, and it's a picture of my name and the meaning of it. Joshua, Jesus, Yahweh saves Jesus' name literally means that Jesus is the saving righteousness of God for his people. That's who we confront when we confront the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now, did you catch that? Peter's a slave of the source and object of his saving faith and ours. The source and the object of it, the God-man Jesus Christ. Grace really does raise up the lowly, doesn't it? to equal standing. It, it really does humble the proud to equal standing. Do you see it? If you came in here proud, the gospel brings you to the right place before Jesus Christ. If you came in here and you were thinking not enough of yourself in Christ, not thinking in biblical terms, not saying become proud or boastful, but if you were thinking lowly of yourself and underestimating the power of the gospel, it lifts you up. If you came in here limping, this morning because of sin or brokenness, feeling unworthy, and struggling to believe that you have equal standing with other believers, be reminded that your standing, your standing is rooted firmly in your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is able. He is God. 
Jesus desires you to be reminded of your equal standing amongst the saints of Jesus, and it promises never to leave you. Jesus will never leave you. Never, he will never leave you to yourself or abandon you. He promises that he will sanctify you where you are. He will finish the work that he began in you, and he will return one day to set things right. That's what Jesus is going to do. And if you came in high on life this morning, feeling yourself, a little bit like a peacock. Ever gotten like that? That was a pretty good day. Got a raise, preached a good sermon, led somebody to the Lord, stopped at all the stoplights, didn't speed. Good day. We come before the gospel and we're reminded of the greatness of Jesus Christ that should cause us to be in awe by his awesomeness. It should make us low and make us realize that I deserve nothing more or better than Peter or Jesus, the Savior and God who saves me. It's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing. Here we find that Peter, who prior to the cross was asking, who would get to sit at the right or left of Christ's throne? But after the cross of Christ, Peter called himself what? A slave of Christ not like who gets to be equal but but i'm a slave of christ and he wrote this letter with an eye towards going to his death what a lowly end for a slave of jesus christ and yet he felt honored to be count worthy to follow jesus into this see this great apostle says our standing is equal with peter's who followed christ into martyrdom see the cross humbles the proud and exalts the lowly but in verse 2, Peter adds a new twist as he ends the salutation. He, he says something here. It's a, a common biblical greeting, but he, he gives it a twist. Uh, notice third, that Peter prays for knowing God and ever multiplying grace and peace. He prays for knowing God and ever multiplying grace and peace. Now, if you've ever received a letter from me, you know that I usually sign off grace and peace. Josh, I didn't come up with that myself. I got it from Paul. Peter uses it. But Peter here, you'll notice that when he and Paul use grace and peace, it too carries tremendous theological freight, like what we just unpacked in verse 1. But they take the common Greek greeting, and they use the theological term grace that gives it a kind of twist, and then they add to it, not just this word that means God's unmerited favor, grace, they add to it this Hebrew concept of peace or shalom. So here Peter adds an important phrase to this this common Pauline ending to a letter and he says this may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ now this feature of Peter's salutation stands out the grace and peace that come come through the saving righteousness of Christ and it comes to those who possess the true knowledge of God and Jesus and here that speaks actually of God the Father and Jesus now a fundamental purpose of this letter is to warn against false teachers who say true knowledge is that Jesus isn't coming back and that you should live however you want. Knowledge is an interesting word when you read it through the scriptures. It, it's a word that it can sometimes mean knowing certain facts, like knowing about something, but it can also mean a, a, a relational reality, like knowing someone. And it's used in both ways in the Bible. It's actually used in both ways throughout Peter's letter. And there are really two words uh, that you'll find used that come from the same uh, root, uh, epigenosis and gnosis. And uh, some people have said, well, I think the, the first one that's used here in verse 2 is speaking of conversion knowledge, relational knowledge, and the other's thinking about, like, content knowledge. I don't think that's the case. Um, we can argue about it later. But it seems like my understanding is, is that both of these words really overlap in meaning and can, can both sort of entertain both ideas. And I'm not sure that in this verse what Peter is saying is that I want to press in just to a kind of relational knowledge with Jesus Christ that came at conversion and is unconcerned with knowing about Jesus and learning about Jesus through his word. Because as you read through the letter, you find that that's not the case. He is concerned about both the relational knowledge and knowing facts about Jesus. In fact, if you look at the end of this letter, verse 318, he prays 
May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sounds kind of similar, and yet that's the other word. So truly knowing God the Father and Jesus includes both knowing Him relationally and knowing facts about Him. Knowing facts about someone doesn't mean you know them relationally, right? I know a lot of facts about Joe Biden. Selection is helping me with that. I don't know Joe. Uh, at the same time, we know that knowing someone relationally without knowing facts about them doesn't work very well either, right? Uh, so husbands, um, free public announcement here. Valentine's Day is coming up in a week. I know you're probably like really thinking about the Super Bowl. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming. I uh, can't help you much more than that because you need to know your wife to be able to know how to bring joy to her, right? So I'm not going to tell you today when I'm getting Gia for Valentine's Day. Not going to do it. She's here. That would ruin the surprise. All kinds of things would go wrong there. Uh, I've got something planned. Um, but, but in that and with that, one thing that I will do is tell you what I'm not going to get Gia. I'm not going to get Gia a domesticated ferret. She does not like domesticated ferrets. I know this about her because I know her. Sometimes ferrets bite your face off like she doesn't like that. I'm not going to take her to eat barbecue for Valentine's Day. That's where she takes me to go on Valentine's Day. <laughs> right? So there's a sense in which loving someone relationally well means knowing facts about that person, what they love, what they enjoy, what they hate, what they or fearful of studying the heart. If you really love your wife, you become a student of your wife. You enter a kind of classroom of Gia or classroom of whoever your wife or husband is because you want to know what it looks like to love them well. And the same is true of your relationship with God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know someone? We listen to their voice. And so where do we go to hear the voice of God? We go to the Word of God. And this is where we find the transcendent, unknowable God making Himself known in such a way that we can understand how it is that He has created us to bring Him glory. See, relational love turns us into students of the hearts of the object of our affections. And Peter wants to make sure that as he prepares himself to face death, that he can leave future generations with true knowledge that will get them all the way home. Now, this true knowledge is important. A 2018 Lifeway and Ligonier study on the state of theology uh, studied a number of different evangelicals and what they believe, and they found that 78% surveyed of evangelicals, people who would profess believing in Jesus Christ, said that they believed that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God, which is a heresy. Uh, defined that way since like the 4th century. 51% said God accepts worship through other religions and, and so on. Don't miss this. Ever multiplying grace and peace, like what Peter's speaking of here. Notice, he says it centers on knowing God and Jesus Christ knowing about him by listening to his voice in the Bible. And that's the true knowledge from above that brings peace and brings grace more and more. Uh, I was recently convicted by a book that I read over break um, by J.T. English called Deep Discipleship. And um, we'll talk about this in coming days, but I just want to clear something up. Uh, for a while, we talked about like our tri-core of discipleship, and we talked about how important it is to be in services on Sunday, and we want to make sure that you're also uh, doing one-to-one -one discipleship, and that you're part of a community group, and all of those things are very good and important, I think important for becoming a disciple. But we also have these equip classes, and these equip classes are actually teaching you true things about God's Word, about marriage, about these other topics. And I just want you to know that those classes are key to becoming a disciple. You need to be in different contexts where you can be taught and ask questions and engage in different ways so that you can learn what the Word of God says. Uh, J.T. English came to this conclusion after serving at Village Church and helping them create a, a discipleship program. And he said what he found was he kept on hearing this phrase when he would teach like basic doctrines. He would have a Christian say, man, I've never heard that before. And he's like, how did you not know that not to believe that was like bad? And that to believe something else was heresy. And so he said that 
they eventually discovered that mission without formation is suicide for the church. So if you're not in, in a class, let me just encourage you. I, I know that sometimes stage of life prevents you from being in one of these equipped classes, but you need classes like these to engage you and to let you ask questions to make sure you're not accidentally a heretic. Yeah, it wasn't, it's kind of funny, but not, right? Um, didn't know how that was going to land until I, so maybe landing better next time. I hope all of you know, though, that our equipping classes are important for your spiritual walk. We're going through 1 Thessalonians right now. Great time to come in, ask questions, be a part. Doing that Wednesday nights. Uh, we have classes Sunday mornings, marriage and, and, and scripture classes, other classes, all intended to help you know God. But we're not asking for something that we want just from you. This is something we want for you. We want you to know God and experience this ever-increasing grace and peace that's multiplied that Peter's talking about. You know, one famous theologian 500 years ago said this, the final goal of the blessed life rests in the knowledge of God. That, that's the goal. N knowing Him, there's none like Him. And so we need to study His voice to do that. So let's get to work. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, know this. Your greatest need is the saving righteousness of God that has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that you have not, that you cannot. He died a substitutionary death in your place for you. He was raised from the dead so that if you put your faith in Him, you will be saved. You will become a child of God, not an enemy of God, destined for His new heavens and new earth, not for eternal punishment in hell. So if that's you today, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, don't leave without doing that. I would love to talk to you about how it is that you can become a Christian. But for those of us who are believers, we're taking communion today. Uh, in fact, at this time, I'm just going to invite those who are going to be helping distribute communion to come on down. And communion is a meal for those who understand and know that equal standing that we have before God. So uh, if you are a a believer who's put your faith in Christ, you've been baptized, and uh, you understand your, yourself to be living in faithful community with a local church, uh, and you're visiting with us, you're welcome to come. Uh, if you are not someone who has done those things, if you're not someone uh, who would consider yourself to be a Christian, then we want to encourage you just to let the cup pass on by as they're passed out later. Uh, if you think to yourself, man, I, I would like to be a part of this table in the future, Please talk to me before you go. We would love nothing more than to see you as, as part of this meal with us in Christ. But this is a meal that points to the work of Christ. It sees what he did. To, it, it speaks to what Christ did at the cross. It speaks to what he's doing amongst us. It speaks to the beautiful future that we have awaiting us. So as you receive that cup, make sure you grab it. Uh, the, the cracker part is in the top. So just note that. And then the juice is below that. And uh, once you take that cup, keep it, and we will take communion together as it's passed. So brothers and sisters, go ahead and pass it out.